So for those of you guys joining us right now um, online um, from coast to coast and across the fruited plains, welcome. My name's Joe. I'm the pastor here. And if God should put it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. And right now, I just want to pray for us. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. And thank you for loving us. And thank you for saving us and rescuing us. Lord, a lot of things I just want to bring forward. We want to bring forward and just say, Lord, we need your help, Lord. We need your help in our, in our own lives and some of the struggles that we're dealing with right now. Some of the things that, Lord, that we need to seek your forgiveness for, we do. Lord, we think of our, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, space force, those serving at home and abroad. We pray for their safety. We pray for their protection. We pray for their salvation, Lord. For the president, I pray you give him wisdom. I pray a special grace on his, on his life. I pray for just that you protect him, Lord, his health. His, his physical health, his mental health, protect him, God. He, he needs your help. And Lord, we think of the persecuted church. I'm thinking of Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a, she's a Christian. I'm, I'm thinking of Pastor Wang and Pastor John imprisoned in China for the Christians in North Korea, for the Christians, Lord, in Eritrea, in Somalia, in the South Sudan, in Afghanistan. God, please help them. And as the author of Hebrews reminds us to remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them, please help them, God. And please help me as I preach today. Keep me from error. Help me to not make mistakes, Lord. Help me to say only what you want me to say. And if there's something that you want me to say, I have no plan or thought to say it. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit in my life. I pray, God, that you would guide my words. I pray for those of us here right now, listening, watching, that you would free us from distraction, from whatever competing thoughts or anxieties or just trying to, to, to pull our attention away from your word. Just give us, Lord, ears to hear and heart and mind to understand what we're going to look at today. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so guys, we are going through John's Gospel. If it is your first time, we love doing expository preaching. That should probably be no surprise to many of you. That's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book. So this is chapter 9. We're going to be at today, part 26. So this is the 26th sermon I've preached in John's Gospel. And I'm going to just start reading, uh, and then I'll give some introductory comments. So chapter 9, verse 1, John's Gospel. And as he passed by, that's Jesus, as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So we have here in this story of the man born blind in John chapter 9. And the truth is when it comes to, say, sickness, when it comes to disease, when it comes to suffering, what we have witnessed throughout history is the, the loss of millions of lives. Uh, for example, in the 14th century, you had the infamous Black Plague, the bubonic plague. It killed an estimated one-third to, to one-half of Europe's population. And, and then you had, in the 19th century, twice as many Civil War soldiers died of disease as were actually killed in combat. 
And in the 20th century, you had the influenza epidemic, the Spanish flu from 1918 to 1919, that killed somewhere between 30 to 50 million lives. Actually, more lives than all of World War I. And then even today, with many diseases no longer a threat, you've got the AIDS virus that continues to kill thousands as to injuries and cancer and heart problems and politicians. And as we will see momentarily, pain and suffering are inescapable parts of our lives. And so chapter 9 is going to begin presumably at some point between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication uh, there in Jerusalem. And, and here's, I think, the interesting thing about the opening scene, and that is the story doesn't start with the disciples seeing this man. Nor does it start with the disciples asking the question about why the man was born blind. And, and this is important because you could easily miss this point if you're not looking close enough. But rather, the story starts with Jesus seeing the man. That's what verse 1 says. As he passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. In other words, the disciples, they don't initiate this encounter. Jesus does. And if Jesus doesn't initiate this encounter, by all indications, the disciples probably would not have either. But simply put, whatever interest that the disciples have in this man, it's only after Jesus' own interest that he has in him. And the reason I point this out is because there is a tendency, whether you live in the first century or the 21st century, there is a tendency, even among Christians, to avoid certain types of people, to avoid all the weirdos who hang out on the island of misfit toys. Because it's awkward. Because it's weird. Because they're awkward and they're weird. And because we're unfamiliar maybe with, with their illness or, or their disability. And so we'll say things like, well, I I'm only talk to normal people. And, and that person's not really normal. But man, if we're being really honest in those moments, the issue isn't so much with the other person as it is with us. And that's because usually it's our own inability to maybe navigate the social dynamics that we're not familiar with that often cause us to walk right past a person. That's why I point out the disciples don't initiate this interaction. Jesus does. Jesus sees the man. Jesus makes a beeline to him. And it's only after Jesus sees him that the disciples see him. It's only after Jesus notices the man that the disciples notice him. And here's the point. If you want to be like Jesus, if you want to be like your Savior, you have to be willing to see people the way he does. Whether they have physical disabilities like the man here in the story, or whether they have social disabilities, you have to be willing to see people whom God loves and died for and moved toward them despite the fact your tendency may not be this at all. And not only do you have to be willing to move towards them, you also have to fight against the temptation to move away from them. The temptation to walk right past them. The temptation to ignore them. The temptation that says, let someone else deal with them. Or let someone else show them kindness. Jesus doesn't move away from the man in this story. He moves toward the man in this story. And I get that in those moments, you might not know what to say. You, maybe you don't know how to interact with uh, people that you're not familiar with. That's okay. Because God can help you in those moments to know what to say and how to act. So his disciples ask him, in verse 2, 
Rabbi, <clears throat> who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Disciples asked the question, who sinned? Which is probably not the most compassionate thing to say in that moment. Remember, the guy's blind. He's not deaf. And if you're anything like me, you may have said some rather insensitive things at different points in your life. While simultaneously being at the receiving end of the mercy of God. I think that's one of the greatest things about God's mercy is that he is able to redeem insensitive comments. Not to mention awkward moments that his disciples and you and me create. Like here in verse 2. So here's what's going on. The disciples have made an assumption. An assumption, to be fair, that most Jews during the first century would also have made. And that is that sin... And suffering are connected. So for them it's kind of confusing. Because he's born blind. Which means that he may have sinned before he was born. Which apparently they are now considering is a distinct possibility. And, And you have to understand that the view that children could actually sin while they were still in the womb was actually widespread in Judaism. And so they want to know, how should they understand this situation? It's a real teaching moment for them. I think it's a teaching moment for us, too. And it's really important that we think biblically through this. And when we do, you say, okay, well, what do we find? Like, can you think of maybe specific examples where this could be true, that suffering is the result of sin? Maybe, Maybe Numbers chapter 12, verse 10? With Miriam? who was struck with leprosy for rebelling against Moses' authority? But what about the other parts of their question? What about the part about his parents? Which, no doubt, the disciples were probably also considering in light of certain Old Testament passages in which God seems to promise punishment on children for the sins of their parents. For for example, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, God said to Israel... You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity, visiting the sin of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. And then you have like Exodus 34, 7, which repeats the warning that God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity, the sin of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation you got Numbers 14, 18, Deuteronomy 5, 9. They both kind of restate the same understanding. So the disciples' question seems to maybe be more understandable in light of these passages, which they no doubt were thinking about when they raised the question to Jesus that maybe it's his parents' sin. Maybe that's the reason he was born blind. However, these verses have to be understood in a national and a societal sense. And what I mean by that is this. When Moses wrote these verses, the point he was making was that there is, and there will be in the future, an inevitable corrupting effect felt on every generation by the preceding wickedness of the prior generation. Which I think when you think about it, it, it it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty obvious. That is to say, if all your family, if all your friends... If all the people you hang out with are evil, that's probably going to negatively affect you. 
That's, that's probably going to negatively influence you because at the end of the day, everyone's being discipled by somebody. And that's the big idea from these verses that Moses writes concerning children who hate God just like their parents and their grandparents hated God. And they'll be punished by God. And, and the reason I, I bring this up, the reason I point this out, is there's oftentimes a lot of confusion about this, this topic here. The disciples are confused. So if you're a little confused, that's okay. His disciples are confused too. And, and the concern is that God is going to punish us for the sins of our ancestors. And this is usually where someone will ask me about the topic of generational curses. And, and if you've grown up in the church, you, you may have heard that phrase, generational curses. And that's typically taken from the, the passages of scripture that I just mentioned, while also ignoring other verses that seem to say the opposite. And so as a result, I'll get a lot of Christians, they'll come to me, like legit Christians, and they'll say, Joe, I've got all these generational curses in my family, what should I do? Like, like, do I need to repent of these things? Do I need to repent of these generational curses? And I've always thought it's a very, very confusing topic to me. Like, why do I have to repent of things that I didn't do? Like, why do I have to repent of things that someone else did? I remember during the COVID lockdowns and the BM, BLM riots and, and the George Floyd uh, protests, uh, there were many white pastors who would preach this, specifically that, you need to repent of your whiteness. You need to repent of your racism that your ancestors displayed. You need to ask forgiveness. You need to even, in some instances, try to be less white, like whatever that means. And people would come to me and they'd be like, Joe, my, my family's first generation American. Like, we weren't even there when, like, slavery was a thing. But I'm hearing, like, some of these pastors saying that whiteness is a problem and we need to make reconciliation. Like, how should we even think about this? And, and here's what I would say. Such ideology, it's not based in theology. It's based in virtue signaling. It's based in wokeness and, and political correctness. This type of ideology is not rooted in the Bible at all. And, and don't take my word for it. I mean, just consider what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. In other words, no, you don't need to repent of so-called generational curses, just like you don't have to repent because you're Anglo-Saxon anymore that you have to repent because you're African-American and your ancestors in Africa enslaved other Africans and did terrible things. But rather, you need to repent when you sin. You need to repent when you break God's law, not when someone else does that you're related to. So back to the disciples' question. Is it possible that this man suffered from the sins of his parents? And the truth is, children can and have suffered the consequences of a previous generation's disobedience. That's true. Like centuries later, when the northern and southern kingdoms were carried off into Captivity, generations of children suffered for the sins of their ancestors. The Hebrew children of the Exodus, for example, they suffered through 40 years in the wilderness because of the sin of their parents' generation. Not to mention, every single one of us has been suffering from the sins of our first parents, Adam and Eve. I mean, that much is true. But bottom line is this. No one is trapped without any hope because of the sins of your ancestors. As the prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 33, 14 to 15, again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin 
and does what is just and right. If the wicked restores the pledges, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statues of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. There is not a single person who is hopeless. There is not a single person who is trapped in generational curses because of what your parents did or didn't do. And this is only possible because what Jesus did for us. And any person who believes in Jesus will not be the recipients of these curses. Or have you not heard that it was said in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed everyone who hangs on a tree. That's gospel hope. For some of you who came from really messed up families. That's, that's gospel hope for some of you who came from families in which you're the only Christian. If that's the case, that, that curse has been broken. If you love Jesus and you walk with Jesus. So Jesus answered them, verse 3. They got this question. They want to know why. Okay. It was not that this man sinned. Okay, we can rule that out. Or his parents. We're ruling that one out too. Here's the reason. Here's the purpose. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. As John Piper says, the explanation of the blindness lies not in the past causes, i.e., someone sinning, but in the future purposes. And yet, you should know that there are many people who would take issue with this explanation of the blindness being linked to future purposes, i.e., as Jesus would say, for his reasons, that the works of God might be displayed in him. We just read that. That's the reason. Why is he blind? Did he sin? No. His parents sin? No. So nobody sin? No. Oh, I don't get it. That's the reason. That the works of God might be displayed in him. And the reason that people will have a problem with this sort of explanation is because they do not like the idea that God would ordain a child to be born blind. So that some purpose of God in the future may be achieved. And so what they will argue is that when Jesus gives his verse 3 explanation, he is simply pointing to the, the result of the blindness. Nothing more, nothing less, only the result. And so the counter-argument, that may sound very familiar to you, it sounds something like this. God didn't cause the blindness, but he can use the blindness for his glory and to show his work. That's, that's the standard talking points from most Christians I hear today. That wasn't God's plan that that bad thing happened, but he can still redeem it for his purposes. Like, I grew up in a church, and that was a very typical kind of Christianese sort of thing that people would say in attempting to offer an explanation for these sorts of situations presented here in chapter 9. And it really wasn't until I started legitimately looking long and hard at what the Bible says to discover that these sorts of explanations, they don't really work very Biblically. Like, they, they don't? No, and I'm going to take you through th three reasons why I, I just, they just have a hard time working. It is, Piper uh, helps very much uh, in this process. Uh, for example, when the disciples asked for the explanation from wh why the man was born blind, Jesus, why was he born blind? Jesus gives them the answer right there in verse 3. Yep, there's the answer. 
that the works of God might be displayed in him. That was the purpose according to Jesus. However, if you say God didn't have a purpose, God didn't have a plan, God didn't have any design in the blindness, but he can still use it for good. Not only does that not answer the explanation of the blindness, that logic doesn't answer the disciples' question. Remember the question? They want to know why. Why is he blind? And if you say, well, God didn't cause it, but he can use it for his good, that's not an explanation. It's also not a Bible verse, despite what people think. His disciples, this is, this is real, right? A lot of people are suffering here in the first century, just like a lot of people are suffering today. They want an answer. Why? Jesus, give us an answer. He says, this is why he's blind. It's right there. In other words, there is purpose in it. There is a divine design. There is a divine plan. This man is not blind accidentally as if God wasn't aware of it or as if God couldn't have stopped it. But rather, God means for his work to be displayed in this man. And the second reason that this type of explanation won't work in saying, well, God didn't cause it, but he can use it for his good, is because God knows all things. Think about that. He knows all things. He knows exactly what's happening in the moment of conception when there is a defective chromosome or some other genetic irregularity. And in those moments, God can simply say, no. Remember, this is the same God who commands the winds and the waves. He can command the sperm and the genetic makeup of the egg. If God foresees and permits a conception that he knows will produce blindness, then he has his reasons. See, there is never an instance in which God doesn't know. There is never an instance where God says, Gabriel, Michael, look at that poor fella there and John Nutt. You guys know he was blind? I didn't know he was blind. No, that wasn't me, Gabriel. Michael, no, no, that wasn't God. Guys, I can't believe he's blind. That's terrible. Poor, you know what? We should help him out. We should help that poor blind man. Let's, you know what? Let's use this blindness for good. Okay, all right. That's the least we could do for him. Yeah, all right. Sounds good. Like, that isn't an explanation of the blindness. Like, that way of talking doesn't explain anything. Not to mention it's very belittling of God, as if to say that God has stumbled upon the situation and he's surprised and he acts in this sort of reactionary sort of way. To be clear, there are no accidents in God's mind. He has a design, he has a purpose in everything, including suffering and sin and blindness. And oh, by the way, the third reason that this type of explanation God didn't cause it, but he can use it for his good. The, the third reason this doesn't work is because any attempt to deny God's sovereignty and control over life and suffering and conception and birth, it just has a head-on collision with the Bible. Like Exodus 4.11, like Psalm 139.13. For example, Exodus 4.11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Do we have Exodus 4.11, Chris? Well, it's there in your Bible. (laughs) And what I was going to follow up and say as a punchline, that was an interpretation I made. Because that's usually what happens. Like, when you say something and people don't like it, they're like, oh, well, that's just your interpretation. Or you're going to see it in the whole context. Like, I just read the Bible verse. So you can't 
poke holes in my interpretation because there was no interpretation. I just read Exodus 4.11. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I the Lord? Not to mention, the psalmist says in Psalm 139.13, For you formed my inward parts. You, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. God is totally sovereign over every single thing in the universe, including suffering and sin and genetic abnormalities that occur in the womb. Therefore, Jesus' response, it really just kind of exposes the error of his disciples' thinking. And that means that there's not always a direct link between suffering and personal sin. In fact, in, in every disability, whether genetically from the womb or circumstantially from an accident, God has a design. He has a design. God has a purpose, and that purpose is for his own glory and for the good of his people who love him and who are called according to his name. That's straight up Romans 8. That gives me a lot of hope. I don't know, I grew up in church, and I just felt like there were really big questions and people would just offer little Christianese catchphrases to like make me feel better and comfort me. And I just wanted like Bible. Just, just tell me what Jesus says in those moments. Well, I'm thankfully, very thankful he gives them an answer on a very, very difficult situation. So he says in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. If I could use one word to capture this verse, these two verses, it would be the word urgency. Or hashtag urgency for those of you who appreciate pop culture references. And that's because Jesus' ministry very soon is going to go from a ministry of preaching and teaching and healing to a ministry of dying and suffering. That's, that's what the phrase means, while it is day, is referring to here in verse 4. It's designed to emphasize the brief amount of time that Jesus has left with his disciples. He's only got, chronologically, just a few months left now until the crucifixion. Thus, when Jesus says night is coming and no one can work, Jesus is effectively saying that he will be taken from his disciples in death very soon. Therefore, while there is still time on the clock, urgency must be a part of the battle plan in kingdom ministry. Since we don't know that moment, when it's going to arrive, we don't know when it's going to happen. But we do know that night is coming. And I I really love the quote from the great Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, which I think so accurately captures kingdom urgency. He says this, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying man. And I often contemplate what Baxter says. I often wonder, is this going to be the last time I ever preach this will be the last sermon I ever preach. Like everyone will at some point have a last time for everything. At some point, there will be a last time that you're ever going to speak to your parents again. There's going to be a last time that you ever go to work. A last time that you ever see your kids or family. A last time that you ever wake up. And unfortunately for many of us today, 
We don't live with this type of gospel urgency, but rather we live our lives in sort of this make-believe world in which we have unlimited time and in which death will never come for us. For many of us, the most urgent thing in our lives is not viewed or understood in light of our remaining time on this earth, let alone eternity, and yet urgency is the issue for Jesus here and the work that he is about to do. And and that's because it is by no accident that the word work is being used here in verse 4. And that's because the healing of the blind man that is about to take place will not just be another miracle or, or simply just a sign, but rather a sign that's going to point to the work of the Father mediated through Jesus, the the light of the world, the sent one, to shed the light on those who live in darkness, both physical and spiritual darkness. John the Evangelist, writing this story, he wants his readers, he wants his readers to understand the long-awaited Messiah really is Jesus, and that his departure very soon, when the night comes, will only serve to compound those sinful Blindness of the rejection of the Messiah. Urgency is the battle cry. And every single one of his disciples, both then and now, have that same battle cry, that same urgency. As we live in a world that is filled with suffering and pain and hurt and sin, I think we're encouraged to know that God is totally sovereign over all those things. But, unfortunately, a lot of people, the way they view God is like a firefighter. When tragedy strikes, when there's a birth defect, when you get that phone call, we view God as a firefighter who picks up the phone to say, hey, what's going on? What do you need? He's not a firefighter. He already knows what you need. He's not responding. Rather, as Piper says, he's like a surgeon who carefully plans every cut, every incision, every detail. Yes, it will cause you pain at times in those moments, but he does so for your good and his glory. He's not like a firefighter. He's like a surgeon in those moments. And I think that is what brings us the greatest comfort in knowing that. And so we live with this urgency. We work with this kingdom urgency while there is still light. And yet we do with the ultimate hope for those who are in Christ. For those who are not under the curse any longer. Knowing, as John later writes in Revelation 21.4, that a day is coming when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying, or pain, for the former things have passed away, and so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come soon. Come soon and take us home to be with you, Jesus. As the team comes, Lord, bring us the comfort we need in the hardships that we face, knowing that you are such a big God, totally sovereign over every single thing in the universe. Help us to live with a gospel urgency, being about your work. And help us to be ready when you do come to meet you. Come soon, Lord. Please come and take us home soon. Amen.